on this episode of The Kinked Wire. I was literally at parade rest in front of the chairman of the department, the colonel, and they want me to do MAMO. I said, I haven't done MAMO in quite some time, sir. And he's like, well, when was the last time you read MAMO? And I said, June 6, 1998 in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. Same. Yeah. And, And he's like, let me think about that. Welcome to the King Wire, the international radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirrobob.org slash In this episode, interventional radiologists Warren Krakow and Marty Rudbani compare notes about pros and cons of past practice settings, how clinical practice culture has changed over the years, and more. Okay, well, thank you. Great, great to have Martin Rudbani here, Marty, and... I know we're doing things a little differently today, just kind of a a kickback Saturday morning conversation. And I guess I'll just throw it out there because I noticed that you're now down in my neck of the woods. You're in in the Lakeland Vascular Group, as I recall, and I'm down in Tampa. So um, I know we both started in academics. I was in Boston. I think you were at Hopkins. You're starting a new practice. Why don't we just kick it off there? I, yeah, I just started here in February in Lakeland with the Lakeland Vascular Group radiology imaging specialists, and it's, you know, still getting things off the ground. It's been only a couple months, but it's been a interesting transition here from one private practice where I was over in Miami for about 17 months to this private practice. And then before then I was in academics for about three years in Little Rock, and then private practice for three years in Pennsylvania and York, and then before that at Hopkins, and before that in the military. But the current practice is it's it's an interesting transition. This group is a very what I find neat and what attracted me to this group really was they really are doing a lot of high end vascular work and they have their own research coordinator. Yeah. This is a private practice group. I was like, wow, and you know that for me was interesting because it reminds me of when I did my you know probably we when we did our fellowships we did yeah. a lot of vascular work and. You know, I mean, as a body IR, I was doing three to five cerebral angiograms a week. I was doing mm. one-offs. I was doing iliac stents. We were doing the abdominal endografts when they were just still in the trial phase. And so to come, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, and, you know, go back to kind of that setting where we're doing a lot of vascular work is, to me, is just kind of, it's, it's full circle, I guess, the way I look at it. But I, that's kind of where I started my career as yeah. a geographer, and it's, you know, continuing to do it again is just, it's a lot of fun. Right now, I'm primarily doing neuro work, so mm. I, really, I really came here to help get the program back to Comprehensive Stroke Center. They were previously at Comprehensive Stroke Center, then they lost some key individuals and had to step down to a TSC level and then move back up, and now they're trying to regain a Comprehensive Stroke Center status, so that's really where I'm settling in here. And it's, it's been great so far. Yeah. That's, it's cool. I, I know that group real well. I know El Masri. Mm-hmm. I had him come at a different practice that I was in, still down here. I had him come give a talk maybe seven or eight years ago. And it, it was already, you know, the vanguard of vascular. They were doing real vascular work. And at least in my neck of the woods, one of the few places really doing, like you're saying, pure vascular work. And I remember being a fellow and I remember, yeah, we, we would do a lot of vascular work. I remember even, you know, early on in practice, I, I also started in academics in Boston and I liked academics a lot. I don't know what, what your experience was or what, you know, how did you like it? 
I enjoyed academics. I enjoyed the caliber of the cases that we did, you know, the challenges, having to think through it, and also having the team to think yeah. through it. Because as, as we've gotten more complicated in our interventions, it's a team sport. Reaching out to other specialties, going, okay, guys, here are some of the other issues I'm concerned about, and how are we going to manage this? Like, you know, just like from antiplatelets versus anticoagulants. And so the challenges of the cases were always interesting in academics. And then there was just some neat stuff we were doing. It was interesting for me to see how Hopkins had changed for me because I was there for my body IR fellowship. And then I went back a decade later to do my neuro fellowship. Oh, okay. And it was interesting for me to see how the institution had changed. Mm. And, you know, it, it definitely had. I mean, one of the things that I saw was, you know, First of all, far less vascular work, you know, much more oncology work, right. which is what we, there's a, we see now. And also the time to, as how did Brad Woods at the NIH, as he told me many, many years ago, you know, the time to contemplate your navel was not there anymore. <laughs> yeah. The push to, you know, case-wise as opposed to research-wise, asking the why questions and figuring those things out. I mean, you have to, the institution has to remain solvent, you know, exactly. but, the, but the time to really explore those things I noticed was starting to slip away. And that's one of those things I enjoy doing, you know, the why questions. I don't know about you. How was your, what was your experience like with all of that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think we're relatively the same era of training, meaning we're young. I'm going to say that, <laughs> but yeah, I remember I was up in Boston. I was at Mass General as a fellow. And I remember, I think the attendings, as I recall, I think they got something like two or two and a half academic days a week, something like that. And I remember like at any given time, there was maybe only one attending a day. So even when they were on clinically, they had other people for support. But there was a lot of that time that you're talking about. And I remember just having a lot of cool conversations and you know, really just insightful, you know, sometimes not even scheduled meetings and teaching moments and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, it's funny you mentioned the NIH. I went to med school in Washington, D.C., and I, I worked for a couple of summers and years at the NIH, but like in a basic science lab. But I remember it was like that. There was a lot of like sitting around, you know, sort of chewing the intellectual fat, if that yeah. makes any sense. I really like that. And then when I got into academic practice myself, I think, you know, even as junior faculty, I was sort of issued, you know, like an academic day a week or something like that. And you were certainly expected, you know, to do stuff, but there wasn't that drive that I had to produce X amount of RVUs and whatever. And you know, talking to academic people now, I know that that's, that's just not the case anymore. Like you said, the institution has to be solvent. The section has to be profitable. Yeah. No, I, and, and that's exactly it. I remember the attendings had one academic day a week and every mm -hmm. fifth week was an academic week. Mm. And, but, you know, a lot of stuff got done. Sure. But, you know, you talk about those impromptu meetings. I mean, that's why I'm happy we're kind of back in person again. Yeah. Because some of my most productive conversations outside of work have been at meetings Agreed. where, you know, I'm walking down the hall, you know, talking to someone after a session or between sessions, and we just have this great conversation, you know, about how to approach a certain problem or it, right. it's, it's what starts a research collaboration, you mm -hmm. know, and it just yep. 
you pass each other in the hallway in a meeting yep. and you, you talk to each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's great to be able to do that. You know? Yeah. Well, agreed. I miss that. And, and I like that a lot. Obviously we all, you know, see the, I guess the need for, for an RVU driven experience, but it's also, I don't know, it's kind of, I guess everybody probably says this at our stage of their career, but it, it's, I feel like it's all changed basically since, since at least since I started. And again, I don't feel like it was that long ago, but it's become such a business that it's hard to fit in those moments. You know, what I'm curious about with you, because you know, we've both been in different practices. I was never in the military and I've always been curious about that. So what was it like? How does that kind of fit in? So I will have to say I never got deployed, so I can't really discuss that part of the practice. Okay. I was actually on the rapid deployment list for two years, what they call PROFIS. And literally I came off of it August, 2001. Oh my and goodness. Somebody else replaced me. Wow. And well, end of September, they were on their way. Sure. So I came right after my IR fellowship into the military and it was at one of the major medical centers. So they did have a residency program. And so it was in a lot of ways similar to the academic program I had left at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the differences there is our attendings, you know, were much younger because, you know, a lot of people at that time, you know, they would do their time, so to speak, you're, you finish your military commitment and off you go, you know, right. leave the military and go out. I actually was stayed a lot longer. So I had a long commitment from ROTC, HPSB, civilian fellowships. So I actually oh, spent wow. 16 years on active duty, my, between my residency fellowship and then as an attending. And we had residents and fellows, and we had some really, really high caliber people who went off to fellowships and some, you know, came back as attendings. We did participate in research, though there, the whole Institute for Surgical Research was down in San Antonio, hooked up to Brook Army Medical Center. And there was a lot of neat stuff going on there from a research standpoint, but it was really, you know, at the, at the same time, it was all military-based, so trauma and mm. Some really mm. neat things going on. One of the things I enjoyed about the military was the equipment. The one thing I can say is, you know, we had great equipment, um, okay. you know, the angiography equipment, the MRI scanners, the military had it set up so that when the equipment became obsolete, when I get to around eight, nine, 10 years, it's replaced. Wow. You know, and so we could always count on having good angiography equipment, good MRI scanners, good whatever. You know, and in my brushes outside of that environment, you know, even some academic centers, even in private practice, sometimes you walk in and you see the equipment and you're yeah. like, okay. <laughs> yeah, whenever I see equipment that's older than me, I worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, well, the other challenge is, you know, replacement of equipment with stuff that was maybe state-of-the-art 20 years ago. Right. Yep. And I don't know at what level those decisions get made. I can mm. speculate. And it's just, it's frustrating. But we had good equipment. We had good staffing. We had, you know, competent staffing. And mm. we had great teamwork and camaraderie. And it was, you know, it was a neat experience. And I, you know, there are things I miss about it. You know, showing up for morning physical fitness testing twice a year at 6 a.m. I really don't miss that. <laughs> That's funny. I I, th I find it interesting. Like you know, here we are talking about you know sort of the economics of things, and I I, I had a, like a couple things I wonder about. I wonder one, 
how much of what you're talking about was a product of the times in terms of, you know, it was relatively easier to justify replacing equipment and high capital costs and things like that. But what also seems interesting, and maybe you've, you've kept up with folks who are, who are still in the military, is that I, I would guess it sounds like there aren't budgetary constraints because there's no RVU types of things, or, or maybe there are, I don't know, but it but, sounds like you don't have to, you know, you've got the federal government funding your new MRI. There is justification. There is justification oh, okay. on a work standpoint because one of the problems I ran into was coding. That's how I got into coding and billing when I was right out of training because one of the things we ran into was, you know, ultrasound. So, okay. you know, you know how much ultrasound we use for our procedures. Sure. And so our ultrasound was kind of breaking down. It was getting time to get a new one. And I remember them saying, well, you guys don't use ultrasound for anything. And I'm like, what do you mean we don't use ultrasound? <laughs> well, it wasn't coded in the computer system as oh, an the order. In the military. We, yes. That okay. we were using ultrasound for hmm. every venous access case, for all these other cases. And so I, at that point, ran a parallel accounting of our RFUs and our numbers. You did? Really? In the military? So they for do six, keep track of RFUs? Okay. Yeah, for six months to show them that they were undercoding what we were doing okay. by almost 50% some months because that does drive the equipment replacement. I see. So, so they're not, I mean, they're not, so they're not getting reimbursed, are they? I mean, from an RVU? No, no, no. But when the budget comes out, you know, this was 25, 30 years ago, when the budget came out, it was like, okay, what equipment do you need? What's I see. Okay. And in the military also, it's kind of funny because, and I, maybe this is that way in the civilian world, but there, are just, there were different pots of money. You yeah. have the equipment money, you have the salary money, you know, and there's different colors of money and you can't switch them around. Right. I, you're right. I remember you that. Jail for that. <laughs> I remember when I was at the NIH, they, because it, it's federal, I think it might've been similar that they were assigned certain buckets of money each year. And if you didn't use it for whatever reason, if there was money, I actually got to present at a conference because of that. They had like, I don't know, a thousand dollars left in some budget. And I had done some poster on something and they said, here, go present at this conference. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if I should, if I'm more than said, no, no, no. If we don't use this money, we don't get it next year. Right. It's yeah, it's, it's use, lose. So right. you, you need to use it or you're going to lose it. And I remember that was one of the things that I did like about the military as a young attending, we got sent off to one meeting a year. Mm. So, you know, that was paid for. And I thought that helped with a lot of things. I mean, you get your CME hours, but yep. you also maintain those interactions with, other, with yep. other people and you continue those relationships and build new ones. I've heard since I got out of the military that they don't do that anymore, um, which right. I think is a disservice because there's the continuing medical education we all need. And yeah. It's it's really interesting to see how things have evolved. And I think like for you too, I'm guessing, not that this is really a parallel, but you've got neurointerventional and body interventional. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm doing both diagnostic radiology and, you know, IR, not, I don't do neuro IR, but it's, I know it's not the same thing, but I often feel really kind of split in two because I don't know how it is for you, but in my current practice and, and many of the I think private practices, they need somebody to do both because as we all know, there's not enough radiologists of any stripe out there. I mean, are you, how, do, how is that for you? Are you doing both and how are you swinging that? Currently I am not. I okay. am, so it, it has varied. There have been private practices where I was reading film and doing neurointervention. And um, body intervention. And body intervention. Wow. 
then, you know, in the academic settings, when it, after my second fellowship, I've been primarily doing neuro. Okay. You know, okay. I, just neurointervention. I do still, you know, from time to time, I have read studies. I, you know, I jokingly tell people I suffered through five years of diagnostic radiology residency <laughs> to be an interventionalist. Right, right. Even my faculty used to joke about that when I was. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. like, Marty, we know you're going to be an interventionalist, but you got to pass the diagnostic board. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> no, I had a private practice experience for about eight years where I was doing all outpatient IR and nothing else. And I, I totally get that feeling of quote unquote, having to suffer through diagnostic. Um, but now I feel like there's a huge push and need for, at least for, from what I've experienced for diagnostic as well. But I just, I can't imagine doing neuro IR and you know, body IR, you know, like come in and, you know, we need you to come in and, you know, embolize this aneurysm. But wait a minute, there's an emergent tip. So also, I, like, I, I don't know how you, how you. <laughs> well, fortunately, we're a little protected there at, okay. um, from a regulatory standpoint. So if you're at a certified stroke center, you can't be on call for both. Okay. Oh, good. So, okay. Or there needs to be a backup plan in place. And this happens on the neurosurgical side as well. If mm. this neurosurgeon gets stuck in an open case, and there's an endovascular case comes in. Well, the, the key there is really having, you know, a designated backup. That's what, you know, okay. you're stuck, call a friend. Hey, I'm stuck in this case. Or have the text call a friend and say, hey, Dr. So-and-so is stuck in a case. We have this other thing to deal with. So as long as you have the personnel to mm. do that, that's really the key is that you maintain the coverage. Got it. How about when you're not, you know, on call? I mean, were there times where like, okay, Forgetting about call, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm the neuro guy. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'll, you know, do body interventions. Did, did that happen at all? Because I would find that very difficult. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, okay. I had tried to do that. And really, and again, that goes back to the angiography part. Mm. I would slide over very easily and help out with bread and butter stuff. When I was at UAMS, I was there. I was the head of the neuro division. And I would help out in body IR every now and then. Mm. It was easy enough to slide over and do the bread and butter stuff. So, you know, there were residents there and fellows. So I would let the IR attendings, they'd take the high-end cases. I'd go babysit the venous axis, the chest ports. <laughs> you know, a trauma patient came in, needed embolization, you know, of intercostal vessels or whatever. Mm. I could go, you know, go with the resident or the fellow and do that because it's just kind of pretty much bread and butter stuff. You know, doing the tips case. Okay, I'll leave that to the body IRs, you know the chemo embo, the Y90. Okay, you guys handle that stuff. Yeah. I'll go, you know, if there's a biopsy, the NEF tube, not a problem. You know, that's, so. that's a great skill, I think, in general, to be able to do that. I would struggle a little bit. I would find it a little crazy making, I think, to have to reset my brain. And I kind of think, you know, obviously there's such a need for radiologists. Again, IR, diagnostic, doesn't really seem to matter. But what employers say they want is is just unbelievable to me. Like, you know, ability to read MAMO, do all diagnostic, some neuro IR and IR preferred. I'm like, who can possibly do all that? Well, in, in the military, I actually almost got something called non-judicial punishment. So, you know, there's the court martial okay. and the level below that's the article 15. Oh, and I was one of two full-time IRs and they wanted me to start reading MAMO. <laughs> So I was literally at parade rest in front of the chairman of the department, the colonel, and they want me to do MAMO. I said, I haven't done MAMO in quite some time, sir. And right. he's like, 
well, when was the last time you read Mamo? And I said, June 6, 1998 in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. Same. Yeah. And, and he's like, let me think about that. You were going to be punished because you couldn't read Mamo? I was saying, well, I really would prefer not to. Uh, I for me to get retrained after not having read at that point for seven years. Right. Right, would, right, right. You know, 500 mammos, having them overread, sent off to, I need to get however many hours of CME. I'm one of your two full-time angiographers yeah. at a level one trauma center. Who else can do angiography? Exactly. Yeah. Who else can do mammography? Right. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I totally agree. And, and when I see these, you know, you know, looking for MQSA and CAQ and IR and neuro IR and, you know, ability to do like musculoskeletal MRI. I'm like, this is not like, this is like, you're talking about four people that you need to hire. And I think that's partly due to what we were talking about at the beginning. There's this sort of business person's approach to healthcare that I think we're seeing not just in radiology, but, you know, I, I'm sure in every, you know, sphere of, of healthcare and medicine, but like, oh, you're a radiologist and, you know, you can do anything. So, you know, we'll have, you know, like I said, we'll have Mondays, you'll do musculoskeletal MRI, Tuesdays, you'll do cerebral aneurysms, Wednesdays, mammo. You know, it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's nice. I mean, you know, with the very small groups, that's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think with the, when you get to the larger groups, probably when you get to around 25, 30 people, there's enough diversity there that you have your fellowship trained neuro people. Right. You right. know, people are reading it. But it's like, okay, wait a minute. This is a little out of my ballpark. You know, there's something yeah. here. Let me send this to the neuro guy who really knows this. And then even, you know, like the musculoskeletal MRI, you know, yeah, there's a standard ones. Okay. Yeah. This one's pre-op. This one's going to ortho. Okay. Maybe we need a little more expertise exactly. reading, reading this study. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, you know, like the head and neck stuff, I, you know, I didn't do a formal diagnostic neuroradiology fellowship, but I've certainly looked at a heck of a lot of cerebral CTAs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And I'm happy to read those studies, you know, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. I, I actually I do have my RPVI because I oh. enjoy ultrasound. Right. And don't ask me why. I, I really enjoy vascular ultrasound for whatever reason. And I, you know, I'll be happy to read those studies all day long. I, you know, I enjoy looking at them and then correlating it with the intervention that was done, you know, the vascular intervention that was done, looking at the studies. And it's, you know, I guess I just like that stuff. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of like vascular ultrasound also, but it sounds like from your first days in the military, you had to, you know, justify ultrasound and so on. So, it, you know, maybe it became like a, a pet love or a pet project or something on some level. Well, I had a really good working relationship with our vascular surgeon. That, uh -huh. was one, that was one of the cool things, even back then in the military, because there wasn't this RVU competition. Right, right. I had some amazing collaborations with vascular surgeons and cardiologists because we could work together. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, that's how I got my clinic started in the military. I was uh -huh. actually talking to one of the vascular surgeons, and we were actually going off to one of the stent graft courses together. Oh, cool. And okay. we're on the plane and I'm kind of complaining that I don't have a place to see patients, you know, mm. I've seen them in my office. And he's like, well, Marty, I don't use my clinic Thursdays and Fridays. You want my clinic with eight clinic rooms? Uh, yeah. You know, I'm like, um, yes, please. Very much. Thank you. <laughs> and that's all it was. And we didn't have to worry about, okay, who's going to pay for the office space? Who's going to do this? It was like, here's the space. You want it? I'm not using it. That's terrific. And it, it does sound like a little full circle, as you were saying at the beginning, that 
you know, where you are now that you have, you know, that sort of camaraderie, given that we're all looking at healthcare, you know, scratching our heads in 2023. Does it feel like it's it's more like what you were used to back in the day? It does. It's it really does. I enjoy, you know, like I said, the caliber of cases that they're doing yeah. is fantastic. You know, there's I mean, everybody has to do the bread and butter stuff. That just exists, you know, right. but having those high end cases, you know, the angiography, it keeps things, it's fun, you know, mm-hmm. and it also, you know, keeps things interesting, but it's a little bit of a challenge. And so mm-hmm. like, how are we going to really approach this? What's the best way to do this? What's the safest way to do this? What are the resources we're going to need? And it makes it interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to admit other places where I've been, it was just kind of, you know, most of it was just bread and butter, you know, right. and right. It needs to get done. And there are some people who love that. You know, unfortunately, you got some of the youngsters coming out of training and they want to do some more high-end stuff. And it's really a challenge to develop that. And, you know, with the constraints of here's what we have to get done. And and post-COVID, staffing is a real challenge. Agreed. And and that's everywhere. I mean, that's, Mm. you know, at the academic, at the universities, private practice, whatever. There are a lot of places where they're struggling just to get the staffing. And it is, you know, if you're going to do those higher end cases, you really need a team. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just where we started in this conversation. And and, I mean, I, I... I I would love to talk with you all day, but unfortunately, I guess there are lawns to be mowed and there's stuff <laughs> yes. on here on, on on Saturday. But hey, look, I mean, now we're neighbors. We we should definitely get together. Yeah. But I think this is awesome. Your experience and insight is great, and I know I've learned a lot, and and I know our our listeners will get a lot from this. And I, I appreciate you certainly taking the time. And we, we should definitely do this again. No, I, I enjoyed it. I, I like to know more about what you're doing. We'll, we'll definitely have to look forward to, to a part two. Sounds All great. Right. We'll talk again. Sounds good. That was Warren Krakow and Marty Rudvani discussing the challenges and opportunities of different IR practice settings. We thank our hosts for their time and you for listening to The King's Wire. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surweb.org.